You can't serve me, said Jesus. You can't bring anything to me. You can't do anything to earn the approval of God to effect your salvation. He is the only one that said, it is finished. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part one of Abiding in the Last Hour with Pastor Paul Twiss from 1 John chapter 2. Pastor Paul will lead off with verses 12 through 17 of chapter 2, six verses that are parenthetical, set apart from the rest of the chapter by indentation and style. These are words of assurance from the Apostle John, first to little children, then fathers, followed by young men, then back around the circle to children, fathers, and finally young men. Assurances like, quote, your sins are forgiven. You know him who is from the beginning and overcoming the evil one flow out of this passage. Why? Very likely because divisive false teaching had invaded this church, buffeting these early believers with confusion and doubts about their savior's identity. Here now is Pastor Paul with part one of Abiding in the Last Hour. Please turn with me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So reads God's Word. Well, earlier this summer, I had the opportunity to preach at a retreat for a church in the Bay Area, pastored by some of the alum of the Master's Seminary. We had a really fun time with them. And one thing that happened over the course of the weekend was that they played a game with the congregation where they would put up a question and then two responses. Uh, One response that I had given, one response that the pastor had given, and they had to guess uh, who had given which answer. What that meant was one of the mealtimes, I was interviewed kind of in secret by a member of the church as she went through all these questions and she later factored them into the game. One of the questions she asked me was, 
what annoys you, what bothers you? And I struggled to give an answer. Laura jumped in and answered for me. And she said, he doesn't like it when people use words incorrectly. And I understand that language changes and evolves, and the meaning of a word might shift over time. But what Laura meant is, I get annoyed when a word is used to mean the complete opposite of its true meaning. And I gave some examples. Uh, if you say that an author's book is incredible, you're not paying him a compliment. You're saying it's incredible. I struggle to give credit to this guy for this book. You're saying, I typically expect less of this man. Uh, literally. We literally misuse the word literally to literally mean the opposite of what it literally means. I'm literally dying of laughter over here. Actually, you're metaphorically dying with laughter over here. So you literally just use that word to mean the complete opposite of what it means. The younger generation, of course, are the best at this. Dude. This is totally sick. It's really not. It's not sick. At that point, Laura jumped in and she said, can you see how frustrating it is to have a normal conversation with this guy? Anyway, I carried on explaining and I said, you know, when you look at words like this and you start to think about their meaning, it's not long before you start to examine the meaning of sentences and phrases. And you start to do the same on a bigger level. So about once a week, somebody will knock on my door at the seminary and come in and they say, I don't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> and I say, you mean the complete opposite of what you just said. Unless your hand movement was involuntary and it was coupled by involuntary leg movement that brings you into my office, you mean the complete opposite of I don't mean to interrupt you. And I'm happy that you're here, but I'd rather you say I intend to interrupt you for the next 20 minutes, intentionally so. And at this point, Laura's ready to make another comment, but then I make it on her behalf. And I say, you know, I don't think I have much in common with Jonathan Edwards. I wish I could have thought the way that he thought. I wish I could write the way that he wrote. But there is one point of kinship that I find with him. And it is, of course, the title of a book that was written about him, namely, Marriage to a Difficult Man. <laughs> Why all this talk about words and grammar, language? The study of language is, is fun. And the study of words is fun. And the study of language and grammar and words is actually very important because we want to be clear when we communicate. We want to understand other people when they communicate to us. More than that, I would say the correct understanding of grammar is the means by which you can live a full life in Christ Jesus. The correct understanding of grammar is the means by which you flourish as a Christian. Or if I state it a different way, to misunderstand grammar is to lack joy in the Christian life. It is to 
shrivel up as a Christian. It is to lack assurance. And if I really push it to the extreme, I would say a misunderstanding of grammar can mean that you live a lie claiming to be a Christian and yet having nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Now, what on earth do I mean by that? Let's step back a little bit. Here we are in 1 John. We've been working through this book, and it's at this point in the letter that you can see the tone changes significantly. In my Bible, these few verses, 12 to 14, are actually indented. It's not hard with a cursory reading of this letter to see that the tone has changed here. Just for this short segment, it's something of a a pastoral interlude, or I I think of it as a half-time team talk. John is, is dwelling a pause here, and he's doing something very specific at this point in the letter. It's at this point in the letter that you might pause and say, can you just remind me what 1 John is all about? And I would say, well, it's about assurance. The stated aim of 1 John in chapter 5, verse 13 is that I'm writing to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you might know that you have eternal life, that you would have confidence and assurance of your salvation. That's the purpose of this letter. At that point, you might say, well, can you explain to me what assurance is? I would say it's knowing what it means to be found in Christ. Far greater than the way in which we typically think about assurance, which is to reduce it down to simply the question, how can I know my sins are forgiven? John comes at it from a broader perspective, saying, no, 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 much more than that, you need to know what it means to be found in Christ. And when you understand all of the benefits, and when you delight in those benefits, that's when you grow in your assurance. At that point, you might say, can you remind me how it is that we gain assurance? Well, John sets forth, I would argue, two primary channels by which we grow in assurance. The first and the main one is that we need to nurture our faith. We need to feed our faith because assurance is a fruit of faith. It comes out of faith. So John is concerned primarily with nurturing our souls with the truths of the gospel. That's why he starts the letter the way he does, by simply setting forth Christ. That's why 1 John is such a Christologically heavy letter. The other channel by which he streams our our thoughts and our understanding of assurance is simply that we must live out an obedient life because there is no assurance for those that live in disobedience. So the two are both there all the way through this letter, and we do well to pursue both in order that we might grow in assurance and as a consequence, fullness of joy. At that point, you say, well, can you tell me how I'm to do that? Is there any more that could be said about those two concepts of feeding our faith and walking in obedience? And here's where I would bring in a grammatical principle, one that we see in this text, one that we see all the way through the letter. I would say, in order to live a full life in Christ Jesus, you need to cling to the indicatives of the gospel in order to obey the imperatives of the gospel. Let me say that again. In order to live a full life in Christ Jesus, you need to cling to the gospel indicatives. 
An indicative is, is a statement of fact. It's an assertion of truth. It's an objective reality. We are here. This is church. It is Sunday. They're all indicatives. There are gospel indicatives. Christ died for your sins. God loves you. You are justified. Gospel indicatives that John is not shy to set forth over and over again. And we must cling to them. We must bathe our minds in the indicatives of the gospel. Because that is the only way in which we might then obey the imperatives. The imperatives being, as you know, a command, an instruction. Be holy. Love your brother. Keep God's word. We can't obey unless we lay a heavy foundation of the indicatives. So the relationship that John puts forward, both here in this text, all the way through the letter, and I would argue is all the way through the Bible, is that you cling to the indicatives of the gospel in order to obey the imperatives of the gospel. We are all prone to switch that relationship. We all want to change it around. The second you do, you flip Christianity on its head and you make it like every other world religion. Jesus Christ is the only one who ever said, don't work. He's the only leader of a world system that said, I have come to serve you and not the other way around. You can't serve me, said Jesus. You can't bring anything to me. You can't do anything to earn the approval of God to effect your salvation. He is the only one that said, it is finished. Has there ever been a greater gospel indicative uttered than by Jesus on the cross when he said, it's done. I've accomplished it. And what flows out of that are the imperatives. And they're never a means by which we earn our salvation. The imperatives come after the indicatives. It is the imperatives that we pursue as a means of saying thank you for our salvation. It is the imperatives that we pursue as a right response to the indicatives that have been given to us. So when we switch the order, we flip this religion on its head. We distort the gospel itself. And one of two things happens to us personally. When we switch that order, even subconsciously, not aware that we've done so, we either shrink back, our contribution to the church is, is half-hearted at best. Our zeal in service is half-measure at best. Our pursuit of God in prayer is half-measure at best because... At some level in the recesses of our heart, we've acknowledged, I'm trying to work for this gospel. I'm trying to work to earn my salvation and please God, and I know I can't do it. And though we may not have articulated all of that in our mind with clarity, to switch the order can be to step back and shrivel up as a Christian. The other thing that might happen, depending on our natural disposition, is the exact opposite, which is to say we step up. You switch the order, and now all of a sudden, 
You serve harder than anyone else and you pray harder than anyone else and you turn up to church every single time the doors are open. Why? Because at some level in your heart, as you've switched the order, you've decided, I am going to earn this salvation. So there is an outward zeal that characterizes you, but it is not fueled by grace. It is fueled by a distortion of the gospel and a desire to earn your way into God's glory. Whichever route you pick, you've distorted the grammar of the gospel. It is of utmost importance that you get your arms around this relationship between indicatives and imperatives, and that day by day, we delight in what Christ has done for us. And as a right response, we joyfully pursue the imperatives not to earn God's favor because we already have it, but as an appropriate way of showing our gratitude. So the text tonight simply spells out that relationship. This text, I would argue, is something of a microcosm of the letter. If you want to summarize 1 John, just read verses 12 through 17 of chapter 2. Understand his theology right here. We'll take them in turn, looking at the indicatives and then the imperatives, considering the relationship between them and how it is that we can pursue a full life in Christ. The first indicative, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, a word about structure as we head into this list. John addresses what seems to be three different groups within the church. He says children, he says fathers, and he says young men. I think when he says children, he's addressing the whole congregation. He uses children as a term of address to everybody at other places in the letter. I think this is the whole congregation. But then there are, it seems, two groups that he delineates between, the fathers and the young men. And the question that many commentators grapple with is why does he divide in this way? One thing I'm convinced John is not doing is dividing the congregation. I do not think that John is looking at one half saying, Fathers, and by that I take to mean simply those who are, who are old in age, perhaps been walking in the faith for longer. I don't think he's saying, fathers, you have this blessing, not the young men. And then he turns to the young men, the, the younger men in the congregation, perhaps more new to the faith, and say, and you have this blessing, and perhaps not true of the fathers. I don't think that's what he's doing, which is what so many people suggest. The primary reason being that when you think about the context of this letter, John is writing to a church who are facing some kind of false teaching which inherently was divisive. The false teaching that he's trying to battle against with this letter was already dividing churches. The last thing John wants to do at this stage in their life, in, in the midst of this trial, is to introduce any thought that might further separate them. More than that, as we study the blessings that he outlines, we can see there is a degree of interchangeability between them. The blessings that he outlines are true, I would argue, for all Christians. And so I think what John is doing is actually the exact opposite, which is that he's seeking to unite. I think with pastoral skill, John is writing the particular truth that needs to be ministered to this group within the congregation at this time. 
And so it serves as a great encouragement for them to hear. What is the first truth he outlines to the whole congregation? Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven, more literally, on account of his name. This is the entry point into the gospel. I've been trying to stress over the last few weeks how we cannot afford to have a gospel that is so small that the only thing we can articulate about it is, I'm not going to hell anymore. We need to understand how vast and enormous the gospel is, how it encompasses so many blessings, and that the entry point where we so often stop in our thinking about the gospel, but it is merely the entry point into salvation blessing, is that your sins have been forgiven. John says, where it was once true that there were 10,000 upon 10,000 sins listed against your name, because as Isaiah says, even our best deeds are as filthy rags, so that every thought and every word and every deed is soaked in sin, and you can't get away from the fact that every day you live, you are adding to that list. And where it was once true that you would soon stand in front of a holy judge, and he would hold you accountable for every thing written against your name and there would be nowhere to run and nowhere to hide and the only plea that you could offer is guilty every single time he says now the slate is clear it is clean he says there's not even a jot of ink there's not even a dash or a mark against your name, let alone a letter or a word or the articulation of a sin. The debt has been paid, he says. Now, why does he seek to minister this simple gospel reality to the whole congregation? Well, we need to be careful to reconstruct the historical situation behind the letter beyond what the text gives us. So what do we know about 1 John? There's some false teaching. Some kind of distortion of Christ. It seems like the teachers were teaching that Christ had not come in the flesh. That led to a distortion of the gospel. And then the teachers left. And we don't know a whole lot more than that. So commentators go round in circles trying to construct the particular heresy more and more and more. And we just need to be cautious when we do that. So we don't know exactly why John has to start with this gospel indicative. But what we do know to be true is that as this passage is in the word of God ministering to us this evening, there is a particular issue that speaks to every generation of Christians that ever has been. And that is the fact that we so often seek to earn a forgiveness of sins on account of our name. So we've already mentioned this this evening. John is careful to say, because your sins are forgiven on account of his name. In the Old Testament, when you invoke somebody's name, it's so much more than simply referring to their name on a paper. There is this overlap with invoking their very presence. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Satan was working overtime with the early church, creating divisions and spreading doubts among new believers. When you add to that the persecution from the government and communities against those following Christ, it is remarkable Christianity survived. The Council of Nicaea was held in 325 AD, 
That's where the Christian fathers wrote a creed by which we still live, confirming the deity of Christ. Satan continues to work diligently to confuse and divide in our churches, which is why we all must continue in the Word, praying and fellowshipping with other believers. If you'd like to learn more about how to follow the one true God, visit our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. On the homepage, select broadcast. There you'll find a treasury of gospel-centered content free for the listening. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Listen tomorrow for the second part of our new series, Abiding in the Last Hour, from Pastor Paul Twist. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today.